Sunday Buddies, episode 20. Wow. The Big 2 mm-hmm. as they say. <laughs> uh, I, I'm Cameron. I'm Michael. I did it this time. I remembered. Yeah. I remembered to introduce the people. Today, we are talking about, we, we, uh, if you listen to the last episode, you know about this, uh, but uh, we're taking a real swerve. Uh, to talk about 2007s. Two, it came out in 2007. I know. I was thinking that the entire time I was watching. I was like, 2007. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, which makes some of the stuff... Uh, well, we'll get into it. This is pre-Obama. Mm-hmm. Which, like... I mean, you can feel that in some parts. I yep. guess we'll talk about that. But uh, but that that is an interesting thing to think about. But, yeah. So, 2007, The King of Kong, A Fistful of Quarters. Um, directed by a filmmaker named Seth Gordon. I have no idea what else Seth Gordon has, has done. Let, let's uh, look at it here. He's actually he's uh, gone on to make uh, features, and um, I think he's like the creator, possibly, of the TV show that is airing currently called The Goldbergs. Is that true? I believe so. Yeah, uh, he directed seven episodes of it. Oh, okay, okay. He he directed episodes. I mean, I'm just okay. I'm literally just looking at. I, you know, I'm just looking at Wikipedia. It could that could be true. Okay, I just I knew he he like had something to do with that because I know he had moved on into uh, like regular features rather than this, which is a documentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a documentary. Yeah, it looks like he's an executive producer on the Goldbergs. He has uh, and, and directed some episodes. He uh, directed 2017's Baywatch. Uh, okay, which is interesting. Uh, he he executive produced Pixels. And uh, directed Horrible Bosses. So, yeah, he's, like, in, in the universe of, uh, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, um, he's the he's the director for the new uh, Lincoln Rhyme TV show. I don't know what that is. It's uh, uh, The Bone Collector, like a, a murder mystery series by Jeffrey Deaver. Uh, it's got the, uh, the TV series adaptation now. Is this The Bone Collector, like... Uh, the Denzel Washington the, movie. Yeah, is it that thing? Yes, it's that's like that story is now being like readapted uh, as a what once the first season of this TV show. They're giving it kind of the Hannibal treatment. Gotcha. Yeah. So we are the uh, this is our stealth um, uh, our stealth pilot, of course, for our new TV podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, TV watching, watchy buddies. <laughs> <laughs> TV studies, watchy buddies, of course. <laughs> Um, no. We finally figure King out Kong. what the hell is the difference between a hot and a cool medium, according to McLuhan. No, we will never know. We're going to say that for the last episode, and then I'll die before we finish recording it. <laughs> uh, it'll it'll be my legacy of of no one knowing what a hot or cool medium is. Oh, we're getting we're getting deep in it. it it's uh it's not late at night, but it's later than we normally record. We normally record in the morning, mm-hmm. and uh, it's raining hard outside, and that's that's the perfect time I think to talk about. A documentary, which we would, normally wouldn't do, you know, Michael. I don't know if you know this, but the show is generally about reading books and then talking oh. about them. Oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Oh no, no one told you. No, no. I was. I thought we were like doing documentaries from the beginning to the end. Okay. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, some of your readings make a lot more sense now. Oh, I understand. Okay. You thought this was a Shakespeare documentary the whole time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, when? When are they going to get to Hamlet? <laughs> <laughs> on a holodeck that's not real how could that how could that be a documentary um <laughs> uh, i can only imagine like a uh, uh what's the civil war guy 
what's the you know the oh. dry long form documentary oh, god god yes uh he, he oh, all i could think is he looks like the kid from stranger things does he he does he has the same haircut as uh as oh he the he kid does from have stranger a, things an unfortunate uh bulk cut ken burns is who I'm ken of. burns yes <laughs> um but, but yeah i can only imagine and 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 so it was on that date that hamlet met the holodeck <laughs> um <laughs> and janet murray did not know that across the ocean an enemy was plotting <laughs> revenge on narratology A little plucking of strings <laughs> yeah um anyway we're not doing that uh, we're, we're not talking about that kind of thing that's of course our own fan fiction uh, documentary that we're writing but we're talking about this because uh you know last episode we did uh carly kasurk's uh coin-operated americans mm-hmm. and uh you and i ha- had a conversation on air uh that if you made it to the end of the episode you you might remember dear listener um about how this this documentary for a long time and i think still is i still hear about uh, hear about it every now and again uh gets taught um in college classrooms as like an emanation of games culture or uh, a way of talking about competitive gaming or talking about uh, these kind of high score runs, things like that. You can do a lot of things with this documentary. um, And I think people still do a lot of things with this documentary. And so I said, Hey Michael, because you'd never seen it before. Correct? No, I had not. So I said, Hey Michael, why don't we, I could insert the tape here, but I'm not going to, but uh, also I said tape as if this was 1980. (laughs) uh insert the recording here but i'm not not going to do that um but i said you know it'd be a good idea i think you you can watch it i've seen it before i've taught it before um and we'll treat it like we treat everything else so i don't really know how this episode's going to go you you and i had a conversation at the beginning that you know uh we're we're just kind of winging it here but we're going to walk through the documentary talk about what we think it's doing how it maybe intersects with some of the stuff we've already talked about on the show and just kind of kind of read it and think about it in the same way that we read um and think about uh the everything else that we do Mm -hmm. you got any big broad thoughts here at the top michael so um two things that i guess i'll say at the top um one is that we've already mentioned this that this came out in 2007 and so it is very interesting to see uh how hard this documentary works to make people understand like why you would care about playing video games or getting a high score in a video game yeah absolutely right there's a lot of work being done there that i don't think would have to be done today uh that i feel like competitive gaming and esports are so much more of a part of uh everyday life and sort of visible uh general popular culture that it it wouldn't have as much of an uphill battle in that respect um the second way that i would describe or like sort of yeah, describe, I guess, my general feelings about this movie, um, is to talk about uh, another classic, 2004's Mean Girls. <laughs> um, okay. Which, uh, say more. Yes. So Mean Girls, uh, the, the movie with uh, Lindsay Lohan in it, um, was written by Tina Fey, and it was based on a book. Did you know this? Um, no, I didn't. Yeah. It was called uh, Rude Ladies. No, 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 actually. So this is what's oh, okay. interesting about Mean Girls, uh, which is, you know, a fictional story, like a, you know, sort of teen comedy movie um, mm-hmm. that is based on a book. But the book 
is a uh, nonfiction self-help book called Queen Bees and Wannabes, and it's about how, like, teenage girls in high school form cliques. What? Uh, yes. Right? It's kind of like this sort of, like, pop psychology um, or pop sociology self-help book about, like, helping or being, I think, being and or helping a teen girl in high school. Um, hmm. So Tina Fey apparently at some point reads this book, and then she makes the movie Mean Girls, inspired by kind of the social dynamics she sees described in this book. So, you already mentioned that last episode we read uh, Carly Kosurik's Coin-Operated Americans. If Christopher Guest, the guy who made This Is Spinal Tap, read Carly Kosurik's book and was like, I'm going to do a Mean Girls of this, he would make the movie King of Kong. <laughs> That's... <laughs> a very roundabout way of explaining uh, one my way of thinking about this movie. And and would you say that that comes from the bizarre affect of this film? <clears throat> yes, uh, it's so. Uh, on the one hand, the film uh, bolsters a lot of the the stuff that we would have talked about uh, last episode through Kosurik's book, right? A lot of the things that she draws uh, our attention to are present here uh, in, in King of Kong in, in different forms. But also the film is like a, a uh, Christ Christopher Guest movie. Um, hold on, I just remembered. I don't know if I know his name. Is that right? Christopher Guest? Yeah. Yes, okay. So, yeah, like uh, Christopher Desk of Best in Show. Yes, Best in Show, and, A Mighty Wind. Um, wait, waiting for Guffman. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so if you're not familiar with Christopher Guest films, very often um, they set aside uh, or like they take as kind of their subject some some weird subculture. Uh, so in A Mighty Wind, it's like former 60s folk singers. In uh, Waiting for Guffman, it's this... Uh, small it's like a small town and like they're they're like movie critics or something mm -hmm. um anyway right uh best in show it's people who do uh competitive dog shows uh he these are fictional films that are filmed as if they were documentaries and the sort of joke of the movie is always look at these people this like wide variety of people um for whom their entire lives revolve around like their dog right and how well their dog is performing in in this dog show um or like their ability to overcome whatever drama they had in in the uh folks the folk music scene in the late 60s um the way mm -hmm. that for these very small weird people with very idiosyncratic interests um a particular cultural object or medium uh comes to envelop their entire way of interfacing with the world that is what happens in this movie or rather that is how this movie kind of presents uh the character the characters but also the their their people right the the people's relationships with getting high scores on classic arcade machines um chief among them being donkey kong absolutely um and I think when you say characters, I think that that's right. I mean, the the way that this movie is produced um, and edited is such as to to make characters, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, uh, someone asked me about this on Twitter, and I think we've talked about it on the Discord a little bit. But, you know, a, a documentary uh, is a rhetorical object, 
right? Mm -hmm. a, a documentary, despite what what some documentarians would say, um, but what all almost all documentary studies people would say, right, is that they're all an argument. They're all ideological, meaning that they contain um, an angle on reality, and they are presenting that angle to you. And some of those are more encompassing than others. Um, but uh, even even our good old friend Ken Burns, right, uh, on the Civil War, trying to provide. All the information possible still has an angle. His National Parks documentary uh, is e explicitly right an argument for the preservation and uh, you know the 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 grandeur of the National Park Service and the and the notion of preservation and conservation itself. Right. So the these kind of quote unquote objective shots, right, that are just showing you Yellowstone or whatever, those are they they are full of grandeur. Uh, and they are shown in such a way in order to provide a particular angle uh, on that thing, right? Same with, you know, uh, planet Earth or anything like that, right? We're supposed to have this sort of affective reaction to animal life and and want want you know want the turtles to live, you know? <laughs> uh, and it's sad when they you know uh, uh, get you know I don't, when they don't live when they right. die, aka dying. Um, and so, so if we imagine, you know, documentary, right, to be on a spectrum between a 100% faithful replication of reality, um, and then pure artifice, right? So like an absolute fiction film. Um, so on one hand, you might have an uncut, uh, constantly going, uh, video feed from a surveillance camera, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so that's maybe one you can't reverse it you can't go forward it is pure real time um or you have something like um i don't know like any serial style documentary that's on netflix right which is 100 percent geared toward a particular kind of pacing and a particular kind of uh mode of engagement of the thrill of discovery things like that mm -hmm. um then the king of kong sits further toward that side than anything else the King of Kong is fundamentally about being entertaining, mm -hmm. and it derives that entertainment from reality. Right. It is and It I, is interested in telling a story. It is not so much interested in being informative, if that's one way of putting it. I, I, absolutely, right. And so I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of response to this documentary uh, over the years and, and the response that continues to happen um, is, you know, there, there's a famous post. Someone posted it in the Discord, but I, I'd read it before. Um, and I, I think a lot of people who end up teaching this uh, find it uh, is from Jason Scott's blog, who's made a few different documentaries around games. And basically, it's, it's a post. It's actually several posts that move kind of point by point through all of the misrepresentations of the King of Kong, how it is not, in fact, reflecting reality. So there's some big stuff here, like uh, Steve Wiebe and Billy Mitchell, who we haven't brought up yet somehow, 18 minutes in. Um, or uh, they, uh, they, they had met one another before this documentary had happened. They'd played, apparently, head-to-head. -head. There's also a third person who's, like, part of this competitive circuit that fundamentally is not you know, um, uh, brought up in that kind of context. Mm -hmm. And there are a thousand other kind of smaller things as things go on. Um, the drama of the documentary as we get there is basically f straight up just artifice for the purpose of the documentary is, uh, it is edited in such a way as to be very entertaining. Mm -hmm. And so some people feel very betrayed, right? So, so that the, these blog posts get traded around as like, well, you know the real story behind the King of Kong. But I think what's really important for us as as both uh, 
readers in the Game Study Study Buddies uh, expanded universe, and as well as just viewers of the King of Kong, is that all documentaries function in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, some are just uh, a little bit more uh, opportunistic in the way that they they depict a certain version of reality. But the instinct or the the kind of revulsion or the unhappiness of uh, fitting reality into a narrativizable framework one is happening all the time in your own brain so like dang <laughs> good luck <laughs> yeah good luck with that and uh and and two is something that's happening across most documentaries most of the time and so if, if you're unhappy about the king of kong you should in fact be unhappy about most documentaries and and i think it's important too to remember that documentary as a discipline has already run into this a bunch of times uh in the sense of um the most famous documentaries and documentarian documentarians over the past 20 or even 30 years play with this very aggressively, right? Werner Herzog, Werner Herzog who everyone knows for being grumpy and angry and uh, Tom Cruise's greatest villain. And, and uh, the Baby Yoda loving documentarian. I was say, yes, like the weeping <laughs> at the sight of Baby Yoda. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but you know, he pressed on this in the 1970s and the 1980s, Errol Morris. And, and so people like Joshua Oppenheimer, who uh, who directed The Act of Killing, which is uh, about Indonesia and genocide and uh, goes to, to some pretty radical places in its pursuit of some sort of truth, but that is not a direct one-to-one recreation of reality. That's all to say. You notice I just named a bunch of dudes there. I'm not super... Uh, I'm not a big document, documentary person. If there are people uh, who you uh, who you think we should be paying attention to here, please let us know. Tweet at us. Um, we'll we'll uh, bring it up in the next episode. I'm sorry to monologue for so long about documentaries, but I think it's important to approach the King of Kong from the perspective not of um, what did it get right or wrong, but how does it work? Mm-hmm. Do you think that's a fair, I think a fair that assessment? Is, I think that is a fair assessment, and I think it's a really good question to ask about this film in particular, uh, because it is... In ter- we can talk about how it works um, in the nitty-gritty, but just having watched it um, twice now, the part of how it is working is that it is structured so... like. For a documentary, it is structured so much like a traditional film um, that that is noteworthy. Like, the the type of story yeah. that it is telling. Like, it has, uh, you know, it's about 80 minutes long, something like that. And it mm-hmm. has a very traditional three-act structure, where for the first tower, first half hour of the movie, you kind of have exposition. You're introduced to situations and characters. Uh, those characters kind of come together in some sort of way. Uh, that leads to a complication that incites kind of the the second half hour of the movie, which is the second act. Uh, there's a conflict there in some way, and usually at the end of the second act, you have kind of a falling moment where your protagonist is at their lowest point. Um, you know, mm-hmm. they've had they've they've met with some sort of hardship or failure, uh, and then the third act in the finale of the film, uh, the last sort of half hour becomes about kind of that swing up and out of of that low point toward triumph um or at least you know uh, some sort of resolution and this movie has that structure right just straight up like and you can you if you watch it you can mark in the at the half hour marks when <laughs> it shifts in in where it's going 
Oh, hundred uh, percent. And you you can probably uh, track it by the soundtrack too, which mm-hmm. we will <laughs> we will be able to talk about. But yeah, that, I think that's really important to to note. I I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because it is one hundred percent a documentary that is structured like a Michael Bay film. Mm-hmm. You know, it's straight down the middle Hollywood, contemporary for its time and contemporary for now, uh, Hollywood filmmaking but put into the framework of a documentary. And that's not uncommon for documentaries. I mean, th- that that's a thing. But, uh, but I think what's really, really important here is that this is not a movie to go to for truth. Mm-hmm. It's a movie to go to because for, for something else, for some other things that it's doing, ways that it goes about representing um, uh, this kind of competitive gaming scene, ways that it goes about talking about community, uh, which I, I think is mostly how people in game studies use it but if you're looking for just straight up what occurred this is this is functionally useless um for, <laughs> for just like information about um donkey kong high scores mm-hmm. which we're i guess we, do you want to talk about that now we've, we're finally getting to <laughs> the content the content of 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 the king of kong but um it begins with twin galaxies right yeah yeah uh it begins well with Twin Galaxies, and so it begins in a way that I think is very familiar if you've ever watched a documentary, where you get a lot of people out of context, um, not in, like, a bad way, but in, like, you meet everyone that you're going to be spending a lot of time with later in the film, and you don't necessarily have a good grip on who they are or what they're up to, but you're getting kind of their broad thoughts on this, that, and the other, um, and really how we begin is first of all like people play these old arcade games did you know that this is what i mean when i say that this would be a very different film if it were made today because this is 2007 and the idea that there are people out there uh play still playing pac-man uh just is presented like you're supposed to be like gee whiz i can't believe there are folks out there doing that um, so you get a lot of this kind of scattered, uh, like a lot of people talking about this scene, uh, the sort of high score scene in classic arcade games, uh, at least partly to get you to understand one, this is a real thing that exists. Uh, and two, uh, these people, you know, are, are real quote unquote real and they take it very seriously. So it's about sort of getting you into the plausibility of that and then pointing backward to uh, Twin Galaxies in Ottumwa, Iowa, uh, which we talked about last episode because uh, Kosurik has an entire chapter about uh, the photograph that was taken at the behest of Walter Day, uh, who is the owner of the Twin Galaxies arcade. Uh, you know, it's that, that Time magazine, or no, it's a, it's Life magazine, isn't it? Uh, mm-hmm. Year in Photos. Uh, so we get kind of that backstory, or a, rather a version of that backstory, and how Day convinced uh, Life to send out a photographer. We get some actual archival footage of the people there. Uh, we meet one of the people there, who is Billy Mitchell, who is going to turn out to be one of the key figures in this story. Uh, we also meet one of the other folks, uh, Scott Sanders. Uh, and like what we learn about him almost immediately is that he was there fraudulently. He had lied about his score. And then he admits that Billy Mitchell, uh, who just did not believe him, did not believe the score that he had reported uh, for... I don't think it was King... I don't think it was King Kong or Donkey Kong. I think it was uh, Centipede or something. 
I don't. Maybe it might have been uh, Mrs. Pac-Man. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. it's one of those games. Every single one of the games we talk about is one of those, like that era of arcade games specifically. Mm-hmm. Yes. So anyway, uh, there's this guy named Scott Sanders who we get as kind of a talking head, uh, and then like one of the things he admits to us uh, is that he lied about his high score. So he was in the Atumwa photograph fraudulently, uh, or I guess you know insofar as we're going to uh, go to go to war for the legitimacy of the various scores represented in that photo. Um, mm-hmm. But so then Billy Mitchell uh, kicks his butt and then Sanders like m- becomes his like little friend, right? The, 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 this is Sanders is probably so we've talked a lot about the weirdness of the characters here. This is a good example. So Sanders is, is sitting in like a book-lined office wearing a, a blazer and a tie and he looks like he is getting ready to film his like public access lawyer commercial a hundred percent and by the end of course we find out that he is indeed working on setting up his own law practice uh but then also the thing that we learn about him is that he lied about his video game scores and then became friends with the guy who allegedly called him out and then beat him there at Twin Galaxies to prove that he could not actually get the score uh, that he got. Um, and he like and then Sanders like quotes Proverbs from the Bible as iron sharpens iron uh, and talks about how like from that point on, right, they like taught each other. Like, their, their relationship moved forward in space. Uh, and Billy Mitchell is, of course, the the big kahuna of this film. He is the guy who, uh, of all of these people who had these high scores, all of these young men, as, as Kosurek would point out, um, Billy Mitchell is the one who goes on to become, like, the best of the best, right? We get a little bit of exposition about how he allegedly played a, a perfect game of Pac-Man, right? Like ate every dot, every power thing, every piece of fruit, killed every ghost, and got the game right up to the the screen where the game no longer works because the, the platform runs out of memory. Uh, and of course, he, oh, at the beginning of this story, has the world record in Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. So... <laughs> The uh, so so uh, yeah we get in all of these talking heads. This is really partially, or, or leads into a setup right for for those two things we're talking about. One is Twin Galaxies and the idea that you can rank nationally, mm-hmm. right for arcade game scores, and right. people are submitting their own scores, and then it, then that segues into um in, into Billy Mitchell as like a figure, right? And that's where kind of Steve Sanders comes in to provide commentary there. Mm-hmm. Um, the people, like you're saying, Steve Sanders is a talking head here, but so, uh, well, I guess Billy Mitchell's not a talking head, but Billy Mitchell becomes a central figure. And then Walter Day, this kind of referee slash owner of Twin Galaxies becomes this like, I don't know, Greek chorus figure, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, who who ends up betraying everyone <laughs> in the end. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, Walter Day, a.k.a. the Maynads <laughs> of, <laughs> of uh, the King of Kong. But, um, but, but really this whole opening section is to be like, exactly like you're saying, Michael, golly gee whiz, did you know people play these games and care about them? And then, super golly gee whiz, Billy Mitchell is so good at them. Right. Um, and this is all caught up in this kind of prestige thing, right? So 
Um, we get one figure being like, look, everyone, even grandma, games. Everyone has played games. <laughs> um, and then we get this valorization, right? That This, uh, you know, uh, this valorization of this labor, right? Walter Day says this. Uh, quote, I wanted the pretty girls to come up to me and say, hi, yes. you're good at centipede, um, which which is meant to be a laugh line. Right. Yeah. Uh, that, that's the interesting thing about this is this is a documentary that is ostensibly about something that's very high stakes. And it's not necessarily played for comedy all the time, but these grown men who care about these games are meant to be laughed at, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and when 100%. I've when I've shown this, right, I've taught this. I taught it, I think, four times uh, over, over the course of a few years. Every single time when I showed this section, uh, laughter. And this is even from a group, you know, uh, uh, for the most part, game design students who are invested in video games in a, in, in, in a professional way, right? But the the way this is edited, the kind of, of life expectations that are that are stapled onto the value of video games, those things are treated as laughable in mm. the thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And we even get uh, so some of the stuff that Kosurik talked about. Uh, not even specifically putting, I think, these words in the mouth of, of Walter Day, uh, but the way that she in in her book talks about how one of the ways that this kind of emerging techno masculine gamer identity uh, gets legitimized is through a parallel with traditional athletics. Uh, And we get Walter Day talking about how these games require so much hand-eye coordination and hand-body coordination and blah, 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 blah. And I think he says um, something to the effect of, like, you know, it wouldn't surprise me one day to see Billy Mitchell end up on a Wheaties box. Yeah. And and again, right, Billy Mitchell's accomplishment in the thing happens in the 1980s, Mm -hmm. right? And so this is the early 2000s. This is very much... A, a long time away from the time that this mattered, um, you know, in in a in a kind of uh, uh, temporal way, right? Like, mm-hmm. like it's, this mattered so much for a certain time and space, and so it's the, the the I don't know the maintaining of of a context that that's so weird. Um, but then all kinds of stuff gets built on top of it, which which is what I find so fascinating here in this like you know top of the documentary right so we get billy mitchell introduced to us as a figure who after we get uh walter day after we get all these other talking heads talking about how how important these video games are we get a folk singer singing about billy mitchell we we do right we get one of the best parts this entire mythologizing apparatus yeah yeah absolutely a hundred percent like that there is a we are shown a system of contexts in which which from the outside makes no sense so you have to get the context but once you have the context you can be like oh like billy mitchell matters because the thing he does matters right Mm -hmm. like like the way that he has transcended the capability of people who care so much about it and so billy mitchell says explicitly at the beginning right he says this is a quote there's a level of difference Mm -hmm. between people and it translates into some games and so that's the logic that I mean, that's the despite how much Billy Mitchell's played for a villain. And we're going to talk about that throughout the rest of the, the episode. I think he's being set up as like, you know, the 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 kind of regal king, the, the man with dominion over Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but but at the bottom, there's this kind of universal belief from everyone here that this means something about you as a person and as a competitor 
and as someone who exists in the world, your ability to do better than other people at Donkey Kong. Mm-hmm. And, but that's the thing is it's predicated to, you know, I, I just think it's important to to make it clear. It's predicated on the idea that this is symptomatic. Our difference in Donkey Kong scores, you and I, Michael, we should have played Donkey Kong beforehand on an emulator <laughs> to see who is who is the better human being. But but it is predicated on some sort of natural, essential difference between human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, what did you think of, you'd not seen this documentary before, what did you think of Billy Mitchell as a person? Well, so the the movie, as you said, uh, you know, very much makes him into kind of the villain figure by the end. Uh, but what struck me here at the beginning of the of the film is how ambivalent it actually is about him, in in the way that you just described. That uh, this is this is a very sort of difficult thing to unpack. Uh, but Billy Mitchell is the kind of person who looks kind of scuzzy right like he's got kind of a look about him um and there's actually like some interesting stuff going on in this film with socioeconomic class and things like that Mm -hmm. uh but it's kind of like uh so mitchell is from the south right he's from florida and he's got long dark hair and a goatee and he uh is kind of he has sort of done well for himself i guess uh aside from getting the high score in donkey kong he apparently has made i invented some sort of hot sauce uh that is being sold in restaurants that he and this is where the movie gets very vague on this point um he's constantly like in restaurants in kitchens in storerooms in his kind of day-to-day to sort of suggest that he has you know this sort of important business life that he is leading um yeah but at the same time, the the types of restaurants that he is in, it's sort of like an off-brand Applebee's. So, so I looked this up. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Billy Mitchell's family uh, owns a chain of restaurants called Ricky's. Okay. And Billy Mitchell creates a hot sauce called Ricky's. Okay. And so it's like his hot sauce is like a branded, yeah, you're right, like a regional chain of of pseudo Applebee's with or, that is, I guess, famous for a hot sauce. Mm-hmm. And so he, that's his business is uh, distributing that hot sauce. And I guess maybe operating some of those businesses, although that's very unclear to me, uh, both in and out of the documentary. Right. So there's this way that Mitchell gets presented as... Um, on the one hand, essentially correct in, like, the way that he talks about, like, the, the differences between us, right? Like, the, the, the film is not, in, the documentary is not interested in questioning that kind of assertion he makes about the, the inherent differences between people. Uh, but at the same time, we are supposed to understand him as uh, a certain type of personality, right? A guy who has, even if, even if his success is not what, like, the viewer might think of as success, even if uh, it is kind of this weird middle-brow middle kind of success, uh, it is success, right? Like, he is, he has accomplished something with his life or is continuing to accomplish something, and he's sort of full of himself. Like, he knows he's accomplished something and he's willing to brag about it. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, he has a huge. His hair is massive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he wears an American flag 
tie mm-hmm. and a suit. I mean, he very much exudes the sort of like the legacy of the pulling you up by your bootstraps, self-made man of America, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he 100%, if you took Billy Mitchell and plucked him out of the real world and put him into the film Roadhouse, he would just be a dude in that world. Yes, exactly. Like there's something a little bit slick about him, right? His self he's, he's a salesman, right? And so yes. there's something about him that's always selling. Um, which, which admittedly, like, it makes her a good character. And, and you get this sense, right, that there's a, you know, I don't know. It, if if Billy Mitchell is a real person, then he would be incredibly difficult to be around. He, he is a, um, a mode of self-presentation. I just right. don't see Billy Mitchell, like, being at home and then doing all of these, like, weird sayings, talking about the uh, the people who shot down planes in World War One. Um, all that kind of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. Eddie Rickenbacker, I, you know, he's full of catchphrases and anecdotes and uh, has a very kind of like wrestling or preachery kind of style to it. Right. He's um, he's always saying things like, well, you know what they say about the deer who runs at the head of the herd? <laughs> that they never look behind them twice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And exactly. then it's just, and then he like lets that cook with you for a bit, right? <laughs> like, uh, the the best moment of this actually is when he's talking about some like he's trying to tell the the filmmakers about like his initials, like his handle that he puts in for the high scores, mm-hmm. um, and there this is like later in the movie, uh, but he's talking to the filmmakers and the filmmakers are like you know oh what is it uh like it's people off camera talking to him and he's like well did you notice what i was wearing yesterday and he like reaches over and he like grabs his own tie and he starts (laughs) like very ostentatiously like fiddling with it um and so the filmmaker who is watching uh who is like talking with him is like is it is it tie (laughs) t-i-e um and then he's like no and he's like still keeps fiddling with his tie and he's like think about what i had on yesterday because in like i guess the previous day when they had been filming he had been wearing what you mentioned which is the american flag tie at the moment he is not wearing it right <laughs> so then the the filmmaker is like us and then billy mitchell's like nodding like affirmatively very pleased with himself he's like yeah usa usa so, yeah. like, this really weird attempt to be smooth to, like, direct them to his USA tie that he is not wearing. <laughs> and then say that USA is his handle for when he gets the high score on the machines. Because, uh, as he puts it, right, Americans have always got to be on top. Which also tells you a lot about him and his uh, kind of place in the world, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, I'm I'm really surprised that anytime Billy Mitchell uh, shows up, that that we don't have the same Florida man headlines. Uh, <laughs> it, that's not to disparage Florida. I you know I'm not from very far away from Florida <laughs> at all. Uh, but but he is is kind of this like, I you know there's this uh, like you're talking about this kind of self presentation that's very much a regional vibe mm-hmm. um, that. Uh, that frankly is just kind of extinct or only exists on uh, TikTok now. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you'd be like, oh, okay. Uh, Billy Mitchell would be amazing on TikTok. If he were 22 today and on TikTok, oh can you imagine? God. Can you imagine how big his hair would be? He yes. would have, he would have, he would have cornrows. Oh my God. He would, be <laughs> he would be a like white man with cornrows. Constantly like getting attacked by possums or something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, he would be waist deep in a swamp, like twenty four seven, wearing an wearing an American flag uh, t shirt, uh, wear a, a cut off American flag t shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that's this is also our stealth pilot for uh, <laughs> uh, alternate universe fantasy <laughs> podcast <laughs> where we recast real human beings. But that's all to say that Billy Mitchell here is being set up, and we are getting all this flavor right of Billy Mitchell, all this mode of self presentation because it's all going to come back um, later. Something I wrote down in my notes is Steve Sanders says there's a glamour to Billy, mm-hmm. which I think is is really funny, and. Billy Mitchell also tells a story about how how lucky he's been. You know, he, he's he's very open about saying, you know, he's been lucky and successful and all this kind of stuff. And he says, if I exist in the world, then there must be, I think the quote is that uh, there must be sore, some poor bastard getting screws put to him. <laughs> um, you know, to say that if one person is so successful, that must be equaled out in a cosmic way uh, with someone else having a bad time. Mm-hmm. Now, Michael, do you know who who else also has this exact same theory of like luck or like i don't know the divine grace no would it surprise you to know the esteemed american literary treasure cormac mccarthy has said (laughs) basically the exact same thing (laughs) so wait are, are you trying to say that billy mitchell is quoting cormac mccarthy here or are you just saying that. that they have both kind of uh, arrived at the same sort of platitude? They have both arrived at the same platitude. That's that's at least factually correct. Mm-hmm. I don't. Maybe Billy Mitchell is reading Cormac McCarthy. I don't know. But if you go and watch the Oprah interview with Cormac McCarthy oh, around when The Road came out, and it was kind of the big deal that Oprah was interviewing Cormac McCarthy, this kind of notoriously unpublic figure, right? About uh, his book about uh, post-apocalyptic highway cannibals. <laughs> Yes, he says basically the exact same thing, that he is he is so lucky that some other person must be infinitely unlucky to make up for it. Wow. Yep, so sit with that. All right, well, speaking of infinitely unlucky, let's talk about Steve Wiebe. Oh, so if there's two figures that matter here, or kind of three figures, right? We've gotten two of them already. Uh, one is, uh, of course, Billy Mitchell. The other mm-hmm. is Walter Day who's going to come Mm -hmm. up quite a bit throughout the rest of this. And as you're pointing out here, kind of uh, the next big person, Steve Wiebe from Mm -hmm. the Seattle area. Right. So this is where, uh, when I said that there's some interesting sort of class regional stuff going on here, uh, this is what I was thinking of because Steve is from the Seattle area. And as you might expect, not being from, uh, where is Mitchell from? Hollywood, Florida. Oh, that's awesome. Which is, yeah, wow. Uh, So, yeah, no, Steve Wiebe is from, like, the Seattle area. He lives in Redmond. uh, Mm -hmm. And he is a middle school science teacher. And we get kind of, that's that's what he is when we meet him. Um, He is going to become kind of our protagonist in this film as he, you know, eventually we discover he, his, his goal, his dream is to, uh, beat the high score in Donkey Kong, right? He wants to beat Billy Mitchell. Um, but we also get a lot of information about his life uh, now as as a, a science teacher, uh, but also, basically, uh, we get this presentation of his life as a series of unfortunate accidents and mistakes and failures, and everyone in his family kind of owns him. 
Or oh, like just spin it, like it's like five minutes of everyone in his family burning him, and it's not clear if they understand what they're doing. <laughs> yes, and so this is another kind of moment where the editing of the documentary is doing a lot of work, right? So if if Billy Mitchell is like this boisterous, successful, you know, fast talking, uh, you know, pure distillation of the American spirit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like that's how he's presented. Then Steve Weeby is I I wrote in my in my notes. The saddest dude bro on the earth. Right. So, like, over all of these clips also, we have him playing piano, which is already a huge kind of difference in tone from the sort of person that we've seen Billy Mitchell be, right? Like, Billy Mitchell does not sit down and and play thoughtful piano music. Uh, But Steve Wiebe does. Uh, Steve Wiebe, we meet his wife very, very soon, like sort of first off. And she talks to us a little bit about, uh, you know, his his past, um, how things just haven't worked out for him. His parents, his mother talks about how he, he started a grunge band in the early 90s. One of the first grunge bands in Seattle, in the Seattle area, she says. And then she sort of adds, we were the only people who came to listen to them play. Yes. And then we have like his friend who says, um, and this is a quote from him. Uh, which is just incredible. I've probably seen Steve with tears in his eyes more than any other guy. Yeah. And, and they just like compound all the sadness, right? So Steve Wiebe was a, right? So you're saying he was a musician, failed at being a musician. Steve mm-hmm. Wiebe was a star pitcher who made it to the state finals of a uh, baseball uh, tournament and couldn't pitch uh, mm-hmm. because either from nerves or his uh, his father had like, uh, trained him too hard you know it's kind of left like ambiguous. He, he hurt his shoulder or something yeah um his mother just kind of out of nowhere says that he might be autistic yeah uh, which is presented as like a, a, a series of cavalcade of failures we know michael you and i that 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 is not being autistic has nothing to do with any of these other uh, uh you know life failures but the documentary very much is like and here's yet another problem with steve weeby right um so so there's this kind of casual ableism that's in here um gosh what else uh he was so his father was an engineer at boeing um, (laughs) and his his plan so steve Weedy's an eventual plan for his life is that he was going to also become an engineer at boeing a lifer as as he puts it um you know get like get out of school like get his degree and then just go to boeing and work there all his life like his dad did and then he got laid off the day that they signed the papers on their house. Yes. Um, and, and so then as his, as his uh, I think this is a quote from his wife that I have written down. He's just come up short in a lot of things. Yes. So they, the, and I'm, I'm certain that this woman, uh, so her name is, is Nicole Weeby. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm certain that she did not sit and just neg her husband the whole time. But <laughs> every quote that is pulled from her by the director of this documentary is just her trashing her husband. <laughs> right. And this is one of the things that makes it feel like a Christopher Guest movie where like yes. sort of the conceit of a lot of Christopher Guest films is that the characters are not really aware of what they are saying. Right. They're, yeah. they're like, they are saying, or like they are indicating more than they mean to um, through their word choice or how they phrased something. Uh, and this is, this is what it feels like where she's, uh, you know, he's just come up short in a lot of things. Like just the idea of your wife saying that to a documentary film crew. Yeah. Which is, it's just deeply unfortunate. And it, it does her such a huge disservice, right? Cause you know, she said a thousand positive things mm-hmm. about Steve in this section, right? 
and these like very selectively edited pieces because it just makes it sad right it, it mm-hmm. makes it extremely sad to hear someone's life partner <laughs> just trash the shit out of them in a documentary right mm-hmm. um so so it is it's deeply unfortunate but that gives us kind of these two poles right this is also the moment uh in which uh the cure's pictures of you which is mixed way too loud uh-huh um plays over a large chunk of this as well yeah and that's that's another thing to like note kind of how these uh contrasts are being established between Weeby and Mitchell, right? Like Weeby is the kind of guy like he is playing on the piano uh the cure, right? He's playing pictures of you. Um so that tells you something about his musical interests, his kind of sensitivity, let us say, right? Like yeah. you got to be sensitive if you're listening to the cure. You got to you got to love to take take baths and look at driftwood and that sort of thing. Uh-huh. So. I, he's a, he's a thoughtful man, and mm-hmm. uh, he he he's a man of contemplation and skill. Billy Mitchell is a man of action, mm-hmm. and it is truly in in the in the contest of wills of, that is Donkey Kong that these two will meet one another. But but this is all visual rhetoric, right? Like this is all very specific use of of editing uh, to manage the tone of this thing going into the fact that Steve Weeby. Um, being sad, being laid off, decided to buy a Donkey Kong machine and uh, started hammering on it. Mm-hmm. And so he gets to a top score. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it is. So it was thought that uh, Billy Mitchell had basically topped things out in like 1982. That's when his score was established. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here we are in, I don't know the precise year that uh, Weeby makes kind of his go for it, but let's say it's it's like 2004-ish, 2005 or something like that. Uh, he gets his Donkey Kong machine and he tries for the high score and we get to see his, his recorded attempt, which is just... I cannot imagine how this... So, first of all, another way that this movie... Not not shows its age in a bad way, but feels like it comes out of another world, is sort of the the novelty with which the idea that like look at this person videotaping themselves playing a video game is sort of treated. Yeah, so it's in two thousand three when he does it, and it's a score of nine hundred forty seven thousand two hundred points. Yeah, um, and yeah, you're right. Yeah, he he's not only recording himself on a video game, but what makes it. Uh, or, or playing a video game, but what really makes it feel like it has its age to it, right, is it's on a VHS tape. Mm-hmm. He uh, has, like, a camcorder set up. Yeah. Um, and, and, <laughs> and then his son comes running in. Yeah, so so Steve Weeby is breaking... This is the tape he sends in to Twin Galaxies to verify his record. Steve, Steve Weeby is getting the high score, and his son is yelling for him. His, like... Kid's got to be what four years old? Three yeah, years the old. Kid's like four years old. You can hear him in the, like the the camera is set up on the on the screen of the cabinet, and you hear the kid like screaming as he's coming in, and he's like, "Daddy, daddy!" And it's it's like so sort of distorted that it has to be like there are subtitles at the bottom of the screen, yes. and, and and Weeby's like. Weeby's like, yeah, bud, yeah. Like, daddy's kind of busy right now. Mm-hmm. And the kid's like, daddy, wipe my butt. <laughs> you know someone's going to take this audio from this podcast now, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. 
but but yeah and and then and this is the the wild thing right i'm both laughing and crying actively right now yeah um, a little bit of movie magic here but he says well you know but i'm about to get the donkey kong high score the <laughs> yes. world record Right, he tries to explain to his like four-year-old screaming son that he's getting a world record, so he and has then, to wait. But then his son says he's just screaming, "Stop playing Donkey Kong!" Yeah, no, he's and, don't play, don't play, stop yeah, playing Donkey and Kong. I, and I'm just like, look, raising raising children is hard. I don't raise any children on purpose. In fact. It's it's because I'm holding out for my Donkey Kong world record. Yeah, I don't want, I don't want any any butts to get in the way um, for for my high school run. But also, um, I'm not saying that it's child abuse to do this, but it's not good. It doesn't sound great, right? Like this is so. This is the sort of thing. Like, were this like posted today to YouTube or something, it would become Twitter discourse for game circles for three days, maybe yeah. a week. Right. Everyone talking about like how horrible and abusive this was or how or justifying it and blah, 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 blah. Uh, like it, it would just be it would it would just catch fire. <laughs> yeah. And it's because you can tell like like on the one hand. Right. It's like, oh, you know, kids, kids go in the bathroom. You got you to gotta do stuff for him. You know, what an unfortunate time for that to have happened. But also clearly Steve Weeby's at home alone with his kid ignoring him mm-hmm. in favor of playing donkey kong and the kind of stress that this child is is uh uh exhibiting when when he's yelling stop playing donkey kong it's so clear that there is uh, i there there's distress in that and that this is not the only time this has happened right like the and, child no like the child is aware enough of his father's habits to scream stop playing donkey kong at yeah. age four <laughs> Yeah, and so yeah, so this you know for me watching it especially now right, but it's this this whole thing in Steve Weeby's life. It's not just like this kind of like sad sack kind of vibe that you get, but it, this is a man who's in the depths of depression, mm-hmm. who is is laser focused on one possible thing. But also this is this is also movie magic, right? Like in the sense of is the editing it's the way that this this uh, footage is deployed after this long form tragic story that we get it's the way these pieces are put together that makes it that makes it feel in a certain way and what i think is so interesting about the king of kong um beyond just like these kind of moments we're talking about is that from this moment on and in fact the kind of legacy of the documentary which we'll talk about at the end of the episode that that it is about how much truth can you expect to get from video mm-hmm. like how much truth can be delivered if all you see is the emanation of video media yep because like i mean i don't know if you have more that you want to say but like one of the next things that happens is we meet uh the like sort of head referee or something for twin galaxies this guy named robert merksek yeah uh, and we can talk a little bit about him. Yeah, let's, but, yeah, let, yeah, let's go. I, I, I think there's going to be plenty more opportunity to talk about uh, truth and how this documentary thinks truth well, in a minute. So I was going to say, like, yeah, that just to touch on the truth issue, like, we see Robert Merczyk watch this video, right? Because like, what his job is, what Merczyk's job is, is to watch all of these videos and verify them. Um, but we see him, or we see what is edited to 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 appear as if he is watching this tape yes 
it's kind of presented as if he's watching it for the first time, but it could not possibly be the first time he is watching it. Yeah, there, is, there is he, some additional movie magic here as well. We meet Robert Merkzak, who who talks really, he talks kind of like Droopy Dog, actually. Yeah, he's got. He has a very. What I really like about this movie is, in in, in a general sense, uh, is that it is maybe the last gasp of the truly regional dialect. Mm-hmm. Like for a lot of these, because because he has a very um, like midwestern of like Polish descent kind of mm-hmm. accent to it, right? And mm-hmm. in, in uh, you know in your and my generation that, that accent's kind of gone away. And same same thing with like a, a particular brand of the southern accent too. Those things are just gone. Um and the like in in the case of the southern accent, really one of the few southern accents remaining is like a very affected almost pop TV kind of kind of uh one. Yeah, so Merksack is like uh talk he's this this is also like a very specific time in kind of online culture where uh, there is nerd culture hasn't gone mainstream is one way of talking about like the the way this movie feels like it's on the other side of the chasm of history because um, this is before Marvel movies are making money hand over fist and everyone is like into geek stuff quote unquote yeah. uh, there's kind of this older like weird uh middle middle state uh where you know we have robert merkzek who is standing there in like his terminator 2 t-shirt telling us how many vhs tapes he has to watch eight hours of vhs tapes he has to watch a day in order to verify all these high scores look at this one this is from this is from a kid in brazil who wants him to verify his joust score and so on and so forth Mm -hmm. um just that he's a very serious man uh with a very serious affect but he is a guy in his apartment in his terminator shirt and like there are just stacks of vhs tapes around him and what he is being serious about is how much how 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 much of his day is just spent watching vhs tapes of people playing video games yeah um and so yeah he they he this enters into the conversation of verifiability, mm-hmm. right? So can you do it? And so the documentary kind of gives us uh, two universes here, two ways of thinking, right? So so on one hand, um, we get the perspective of Twin Galaxies, which is that uh, Steve, Steve Wiebe uh, accomplished this in his own at-home machine and recorded it, so it needs to be verified because it's a big deal. This is a record that's being broken after 20 years. Yeah, mm-hmm. right at twenty years, I guess. Um, so on one hand, it needs to be verified. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we're given the perspective from Steve Wiebe, which is that um, there is a conspiracy of people who are in an inner circle centered around Billy Mitchell and Twin Galaxies in general of the old guard of arcade games, and they don't like that the score is being beaten, and they are going to find a way to disqualify him. Mm-hmm. So what happens is uh, two people show up at uh, Weeby's house on behalf of Twin Galaxies in order to inspect his machine and make sure there is nothing uh, untoward or strange or modified about it. Um, and they, yeah, they basically invade his home. Yeah. So, and this is one of those points that is like, uh, I think, contentious in in the accuracy of its portrayal because how it is pre- presented in the documentary is Steve is out um and his his 
uh what's his wife's name is it nicole yeah nicole yeah so nicole is telling the story about how uh two men show up on her front porch one day saying that they're from twin galaxies or whatever and they need to speak with steve uh and she says he's not here right now um i'm stepping out my mom is in the house just like wait around and wait for my husband to get home uh, and then she leaves, and apparently what ends up happening is these two guys, um, named Perry Rogers and Brian Koo, uh, they, I guess, end up talking with Nicole's mother and getting into the house and going into the garage and disassembling Steve Weeby's uh, Donkey Kong machine in order to inspect its hardware. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is, in the, as I said, it's in, in the film, it's presented as you know, really shady kind of uh, invasion of privacy sort of thing. Although I think some of the, you know, the stuff that's been said around the production of the film and sort of how it presents reality is, uh, I think it's been it's been claimed by the other side that, like, this was in fact a scheduled thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think everyone agrees on that too, right? So, yeah. so, so it's even more that... The documentary presents it as this kind of nefarious thing. Right. The, um, the documentary presents it as if they just, like, showed up out of nowhere. That, like, it, Steve yeah. Levy didn't even know they were coming. Um, and so, through this kind of conversation, they find out... They, they see, a, like, a FedEx box. And they find out that the board, the Donkey Kong board, like, the, the hardware, that is in the, the machine that uh that that steve weeby has been using is from this guy named roy schilt mm -hmm. um who is also known as mr awesome mm -hmm. this um, is where like the bottom totally falls out on on the world for me in this film because there is so a weird yeah th there's basically a uh like a shadow war <laughs> going on <laughs> in the history of video games <laughs> Um, yeah, so like Roy Schultz had a high score in Missile Command that, for reasons I'm still not entirely sure of, is not recognized by Twin Galaxies. Um, I do, do you know why? No, I have no okay. idea. I can look it, it up. But I also, for some reason, wrote down uh, the phrase, a devilish man, <laughs> which I don't think anyone says that in the movie. <laughs> I think that was just my own commentary. <laughs> a devilish man. Um, yeah, well, like Roy Schultz, so... The, what comes out is that Roy Schilt has this high score in Missile Command that, for whatever reason, is not recognized by Twin Galaxies. And he has a long-standing kind of beef, not only with Twin Galaxies generally, but apparently Billy Mitchell specifically. And at some point when Steve Weeby was attending uh, a kind of, you know, retro uh, gaming sort of event, he became friends with Roy Schilt. And Roy Schilt has provided him with this new board for his Donkey Kong machine after the the previous board uh, malfunctioned in some way. Mm -hmm. So it's it's you know a kind of gesture of of friendship and so on and so forth, just support. But because Roy Schilt has kind of this history with Billy Mitchell, the the other the, the person who holds the high score, it's very very suspicious. And not only that, but Roy Schilt is not just he doesn't just go by Mr. Awesome. Uh, Mr. Awesome is his alter ego that he created for his series of pickup artist videos that he self-produced and released. Oh and we get God. to see some of these. And it is, again, like yawning chasm of history, the most early 90s, you know, VHS gold rush kind of anyone can make their own videos and sell them uh, 
in in magazine ads or something uh bullshit where he's hanging out with like women in skimpy bikinis and he wears like a a, a fake police uniform and talks about how it, the key to getting women to sleep with you is to not respect them essentially right like that ah. specific brand of 90s pick if you if you think of tom cruise in uh magnolia <laughs> yeah uh but anyway it's 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 that kind of uh that kind of approach to to women uh and this is presented you know as a character indictment of schilt and i would say it it is uh but also i don't know if necessarily his his re- views on women translate to whatever scheme that they allege that he cooked up on his own uh, to, like, deliver to Steve Weeby a doctored Donkey Kong board that would somehow make it easier for uh, Steve to get a high score. And, but that's the conclusion that they come to. And in fact, I believe it's... Um, Robert Merzik, who talks about how, like, they find some sort of, uh, something sticky, right? Some sort of substance Mm -hmm. on one of the transistors or something. uh, Yeah, a white. And so anything, any alteration to the board, Michael, would Mm -hmm. fundamentally invalidate the score. Um, so, so that's, that's the kind of thing, right? So Steve Weeby sends it in, um, should be good. But based on these this weird set of circumstances and, and things like that, and who knows who and things like that, it is fundamentally invalidated. Mm-hmm. Which is weird. Yeah, so then the, the sort of rejoinder, because like Steve Weeby is not happy about this, the rejoinder that he gets is that if he would like to attempt the record again, he will have to come to a uh, a sanctioned location, and he will have to get the score on a machine that is not his own, that is not a home machine. Um, and and so then, therefore, they go to Fun Spot, a yes. uh, kind of very famous arcade. But before we talk about Fun Spot, and this is basically, right, you're talking about kind of the three-act structure, this is the beginning of the second act, right? The, right. This kind of, of uh, oh, Steve Weeby had it, but it's been snatched from his hands or from his fingers, from twixt his very fingers, <laughs> um, as, as the immortal bard would say, of course. Um, uh, but I want to talk really quickly here, Michael, because uh, somewhere around here is when Steve Sanders says video games need a guy like Bush. Yes. Holy <laughs> crap. What? <laughs> so Steve Sanders is talking about, uh, he's talking about how, uh, you need this kind of refereeing. You need this, this, um, standard setting in order to have competition. And so he says that, and it's really, it's at the end of the sentence, he says, video games need a guy like Bush, mm-hmm. who says, this is the rule, and you gotta stick to it. And it's wild, because, like, there's, it comes out of nowhere, right? He does not even say George W. Bush or George Bush, he just says, like, Bush, and up until that point, he is not talking about politics, so you just have to know, like, oh, he means, he means George W. Bush, and yeah. suddenly the and again like one of those moments where a character kind of says more than than they mean to an entire world of kind of a, of a politics or a, or sort of not even politics right but sort of a, a metaphysical view of the world that animates a certain political view gets illuminated 
Yes, there there is a a line gets drawn in the same way that Billy Mitchell talking about how uh, there's a level of difference between people, how that draws a line right through through the kind of undercurrent of how this network of people thinking about games, how how they think about the world. Um, Yeah, exactly. The, The idea that there needs to be an arbiter of justice and that arbiter of justice in in a broader sense is george w bush uh noted invader of iraq and mm-hmm. afghanistan um and uh you know adherent to the or, or, or propagator of the mexico city policy um uh noted uh you know just you know we all know about right. what george well, w bush was up to I mean, right yeah um, I mean, it's like just to be clear right the thing that the, the sort of argument that i think uh gets made at this time is the one that gets encapsulated in the title of of matt uh matt stone and trey parker's film team america world police yeah right uh and to and to that idea that there needs to be a police of the world and it should be america uh sanders appears to say yes yeah that there that there needs to be an an arbiter an arbiter yeah of of the mode of justice as if justice itself, right? As if this idea of creating a level playing field and as if the idea of who gets to determine what justice is, as if that is like fully transparent, has nothing to do with uh, the day-to-day lived politics of what it means to be the person who is doing that, right? So it's this kind of brilliant moment on one hand, right? Because it it, it is um, drawing a line between this kind of seemingly, in the, in the documentary, seemingly arbitrary... Um, going to Steve Wiebe's house, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the seemingly arbitrary uh, po- political moves uh, of the of the period, uh, you know, at the time. So, I don't know. I think it's really interesting. This is also the second section of the documentary where we see that Walter Day is a proponent of transcendent, transcendent meditation. Um, yes, and it's all about like a, unlocking your, your potential, which is what his entire life is about, is unlocking potential. Yeah. Walter Day and David Lynch. Yes. <laughs> but anyway yeah do you have any other thoughts about the the bush thing i think that's really weird yeah no i mean other than that i was like did did he just is that what he meant and then watching it again and being like yeah no that appears to be what he meant and thinking it's weird uh yeah that's that's all i got yeah i had to go back i had to like rewind the thing and then turn on subtitles (laughs) Mm -hmm. to be like is that really what he's saying Um, well it's like it's one of those things where you might think that he messed up and referred to Billy Mitchell as Bush or something. Yeah. Because he is just, he had just been talking about, I think Billy Mitchell or Walter day or something. So they go to fun stop. Mm -hmm. Fun spot. What did I say? Fun stop. Fun stop. You know, fun stop. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, fun dip. The, uh, (laughs) we get a definition of DDG. Yes. Uh, Drop dead. Gorgeous. Drop dead. Gorgeous women. Of course. Um, I, I wrote that down in my notes because I think that comes out of nowhere. It um, does, but uh, it, because we get we... that from Mark, uh, his name I think his name is Mark Alpagier, uh, who I think owns the or like owns holds the world record for a couple of games high score played with your feet. Uh, cool. Yeah, like that's cool. I, I I like looked him up because this guy like. He's a real particular guy as well, right? There's, if you're not familiar with the Christopher Guest stuff that I've been mentioning, maybe this will help. There's like some Tim and Eric vibes to a lot of these people. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like public access cable kind of personalities. Yeah, like they showed up to a casting call. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, yeah, and um, but because because they're talking about Billy Mitchell, right? Like Billy Mitchell in so many of these conversations functions as an aspirational figure mm-hmm. of like he is cool because he gets high scores in Donkey Kong, and then very attractive women want to hang out with him. Right, and I think the very attractive women are his wife. Yeah, yeah, we get his we get his wife later, but uh, yeah, no. So we have Mark Alpagier talking about sort of how, you know, there just aren't a lot of girls at these things, and or like you you know you'll just notice there are not a lot of DG, DDGs, which is drop mm-hmm. dead gorgeous. If if you didn't know, mm-hmm. uh, as he's like just sort of rambling on about kind of the culture of which he is a part uh, to to the filmmakers. Yeah, and you really get. I wonder here too, just because the number of times that like um, that women come up in that kind of way in this documentary, you know, I wonder how much of that Mister Awesome vibe is mm. is suffused throughout this this culture at the time, right. uh, or you know, this very particular set set of men. Anyway, they go to Fun Spot, um, and Steve Weeby starts rocking this machine. And uh, well, we meet. So we also meet Brian Koo, who's another yeah, that's one of the, to bring up. Yeah, yeah he. So we, his little story. Um, he's one of the people who went and inspected the Donkey Kong machine at at Weeby's house. First of all, uh, but second of all, he retired at thirty. He's probably the youngest guy we've we've seen in in this documentary so far. He retired at thirty. And so we can probably kind of get the sense that he did something in tech, right? Like I think that's the the gap that we're supposed to fill in there. He he wrote some really good algorithm, uh, and then retired at thirty, m- moved out to Laconia, New Hampshire, where Funspot is, and now he goes to Funspot every day and plays these arcade games. And one of the things he wants to do is also beat Billy Mitchell's King Kong or King Kong Donkey Kong high score. Uh yeah, and so he's constantly like reporting back to Billy Mitchell. <laughs> uh he's presented as a real uh a real kind of snaky fella. Right, it's it's like he, he's kind of the worm tongue of the movie. Oh, he's absolutely a worm right? tongue. <laughs> because on the one hand, or like, you know, it, to be to be more in my wheelhouse, right? He's he's Iago, who oh, talks no. about Othello, where he says, you know, <laughs> I only, I only, you know, uh, do this to serve my turn upon him, right? I only appear to serve him in order to, like, finally double cross him in the end. Brian Koo is kind of doing the same thing, where his, his greatest aspiration is is to beat Billy Mitchell's high score, and at the same time, he is presented as such a crony to Mitchell himself, and is constantly calling him and reporting. He's like, he calls him, and he's like, Steve Weeby just walked in. <laughs> yeah, and and so uh, Steve Weeby continue plays the game over uh, like a couple days, I think. Right? I mean, it, I don't, I don't get the sense it's like one evening, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, rocks the world record. <laughs> <laughs> right i mean that's what yeah. happens well uh, like he does uh and also like this is is this also um this is also where Koo is yeah no this is also where Koo starts we get we get the kill screen explained oh yeah which which right. uh I, which is like so right a kill screen is just as you were saying earlier right it's just when the machine runs out of memory 
um, mm-hmm. you know, it's the, the as far as you can go with what the machine has in the game build or the not the game the movie builds this up so much like kill screen matters kill screen matters and then we get this like supercut of Koo running around to me like there's a there's a Donkey Kong kill screen coming up right and this there's gives you another coming up. this is more of that worm t- worm tongue stuff because Steve because it's presented as Steve Weeby is just like doing his thing right he's concentrated <laughs> he's focused he's going to he's going to get this high score and Koo is going around the entire arcade telling everyone there's a there's a donkey there's a possible donkey kong kill screen coming up if you want to go watch and just like making this crowd agglomerate around Weeby yeah um, so yeah, so it was just like this ultra, and who knows, right? Again, movie magic. We don't know. Did, did Brian Koo bring the whole arcade over there to this, like nobody, Steve Weeby who already, you know, had gotten the score? No, absolutely not. Right. People, Walter Day is there. Like people are there to make scores happen a hundred percent. It's not just this guy, but yeah, there's this very particular, particular kind of editing that makes him look like this just absolute jerk. Uh, also want to point out right now we have now been talking longer than this movie <laughs> great great <laughs> you could you could you could have watched the movie in the time uh, it's taken to, to do it and we are only halfway through it um but yeah so he gets the score and um in, well, he in... gets the score and he reaches the kill screen um and we get this great shot so we get this uh, great shot of brian Coode like talking to the filmmaker uh you know, admitting that he like this is the only the second time someone has reached the kill screen in a, in a public play session. The first time was Billy Mitchell, uh, and Brian Koo saying like, "I thought I'd be the first one, but yeah, anything can happen in Donkey Kong." And then he just kind of closes his mouth, and there's you know half a second too much of just him standing there in silence. Oh yeah, it's a, yeah he is he is beaten up by this film. Mm-hmm. This film goes like. 12 rounds with this man yeah <laughs> and, it, and it does not come out well um but yeah so so he gets it it's recognized all these different kinds of things right and so this is the like you know the transformative moment and this actually takes quite a bit of time to get through we, we've kind of summarized it uh pretty pretty aggressively here but then lo and behold again some movie magic knowing that Steve Weeby could do this. Billy Mitchell has set into motion a series of events so bewildering that no one could have planned for it. Michael, he has no. sent a like eighty-five-year-old woman mm-hmm. from Florida <laughs> with a videotape. Her name is Doris. Doris Self. Yeah, who had like a like Mappy score or something. No, she had <laughs> she had uh, the world record in Cubert and then lost it, and she is training currently to get that high score back. Uh, and like in an earlier scene, again as a part of kind of like the weird ambivalence this film has about Billy Mitchell, we see Billy Mitchell himself delivering a new Cubert machine to Doris Self at her at her home in Florida, and she is just so thrilled. But then we also get uh, a little like moment with just Doris Self talking to to the filmmakers, and she's like, "Yeah, Billy's kind of a conniving guy." <laughs> um. I want to uh, I want to take a moment here to extend a uh, a rest in peace to Doris Self. Yes, no, you find out at the end of this film that um, she had passed away. I think just before it came out, and it's it is sad because also kind of like I want to see the documentary about her. I want to know how she got the high score in Cubert, like what that was all about. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm scanning the Wikipedia here, but yeah, not not enough. Uh, she tried very hard to get it, um, it, it, it toward the end of her life. But uh, yeah, anyway, so she shows up. She's got this videotape. But boom, Billy Mitchell has a higher score on a videotape. Mm-hmm. So now Steve Wiebe only has the highest score reached in person. Uh, yeah. In fact, Billy Mitchell's score has broken a million points. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty significant. And we have, again, Brian Koo kind of calling back and explaining all of this to Mitchell. And these, uh, talking about movie magic, uh, these scenes with Billy Mitchell on the phone feel like total pickups. Like, yeah. by which I mean, like, there is no way that they had two film crews on both sides of this phone call. Like, they flew down to Florida later and they had Billy Mitchell pretend to be on the other end of this phone call. Uh, and I yeah. say this, I say this because we get some really weird shots here. Uh, if you follow us on Twitter at Range Touched, I have <laughs> tweeted some of them. Uh, one of them in particular is Billy Mitchell, like laid back on the couch with like glassware sitting around him, mm-hmm. uh, and he is in his socks. And his like the way the shot is framed is like his feet are just like massive and right up by the 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 camera and the intended effect i think is supposed to make it seem like oh you know look at his kind of like like the luxury that this king of kong sits in Mm -hmm. um leaning back on the couch with his feet up and surrounded by all of his glassware but because of the kind of like there's not really a strong depth of field on the camera and the stuff surrounding him is not really that nice it kind of feels like the room (laughs) Yeah, so it's a little more uh, Tarantino and not in a good way. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, we have him on the phone, uh, like on the phone, like leaning back and with just this total shit-eating grin on his face as he real <laughs> as he knows, right? As Koo reports to him and affirms that he has snatched the record out of Steve Weeby's hands. And and so this is a I, what I think is interesting here at this point in the documentary is yeah exactly like you're pointing out real movie magic real use of editing and use of pickup shots and and things obviously filmed way beforehand or after uh, you know I unclear when he gives Doris that videotape and when they captured that footage right but mm-hmm. um, use of all this these different times in order to make it seem like there's a very clear timeline here but then followed by something that's this, this close to like cinema verite as this ever gets, which is all of these adult men sitting on the floor and eating dominoes in a trailer. Yes. And yes. And they all go to Brian Koo's house, like up the street from fun spot. And they're all like sitting around eating dominoes and like, uh, uh, Koo is on the phone with Billy Mitchell and Billy Mitchell wants to talk with someone. Um, <laughs> yeah, he wants to talk to Walter Day. Uh, no, no, it's not Walter Day. He wants to talk to... It, you, he maybe does later, but there's uh, at one point where uh, Mitchell is asking to speak with someone, and or he asks if someone is there, and Koo is like, he is, but would you believe it? He's in the middle of the, he's in the middle of a game of Centipede right now. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. I forgot. I forgot <laughs> and you like, and it like sort of pans over, and you see this guy who I don't think you ever get, like we ever talk to or get a name for, but we just see this guy like standing there at this Centipede uh cabinet in brian Koo's living room playing the hell out of it uh yeah yeah and so it's got this weird kind of moment of this this moment in particular despite being in the middle of you know some some weird movie magic right uh some weird use of editing to create a coherent narrative um 
something that feels like what what is probably real for most of these people, which is that a couple times a year they get together with people that they've known for twenty plus years, and they all nerd out about something that they care about probably more than anyone else on the planet. Just mm-hmm. straight up. I mean, um, I've been I've been in situations like this, right? Like not ooh. not like you know competitive gaming stuff, but like I have I have long standing internet friendships, right? People that I have known for well. I guess like 15 maybe 20 years at this point who like and you we we get together like we would get together every every few years and it was like yeah we're at so and so's house and we're all going to eat dominoes and play video games for the weekend Mm -hmm. right it's it feels very much like that (laughs) but what's different about the two things that I think is is uh, interesting right is that you and your internet friends are just internet friends Mm -hmm. Uh, these people who are are ostensibly the most professional people in their field for the thing that they're together with right so it's like what if all of the owners of the nfl like all the team owners they got together (laughs) and sat on the floor and ate dominoes right it's like you know there there are these kind of two narratives right one about this is the most these are the biggest professionals in their field with the best organization twin galaxies in that field and they are all together in one place they could be on a wheaties box someday eating dominoes on the floor in a trailer that can fit maybe eight people in the centipede machine in it yes and everyone is like flipping out over over this incredible high score that billy mitchell has made uh in donkey kong but billy mitchell is not there uh but we do get him saying to the camera not even helen of troy got that much attention I cannot, Michael. I wrote down that quotation too. I, yep. I, I was like, I got, I have to write this down. What, what an interesting, you know, just like my peers caring about me. What kind of classical reference could I make here? Ah, uh, yes, the progenitor of the Trojan War, <laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's a, a fascinating. The way the man's mind works, right? Even if this is movie magic, even if this is a character, the kind of way you have to think about the world and yourself and the references you make in order to inhabit that character is, you know, I'm going to get in trouble here, Shakespearean. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, I think that's true. Like, there's a kind of meta thinking that Billy Mitchell seems to be doing all the time of, like, seeing himself from, you know, a God's eye position and then saying things that are just bewildering. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, Steve Wiebe could never. He might be more considered, but he would never. He would never compare himself to Helen of Troy. No, not even close. Um, And, of course, I wrote my notes here that Steve Wiebe is openly weeping at this point in the film. Yes, yes, we see him crying. Like his friend said, <laughs> his friend is is great. Uh, at one point, his friend like lights up a cigarette in the middle on camera, right? <laughs> on yeah. camera, yeah. It really made like I just can't imagine that happening in in twenty twenty in a documentary like this. A man just like roasting dudes left and right, uh, and then lighting up a cigarette. He's a very confident man. Mm-hmm. Um. We get a little, little after this. We get a little brief scene of Walter Day explaining his music career in front of this extremely midwestern collapsing barn. Yeah, this is also uh, somewhere in the section where he's like crammed in the front seat of a of a like a, a Volvo turned around backwards, talking to the back seat. You get the sense that the camera op in this uh, in this documentary got to spend a lot of quality time with Walter Day, mm-hmm. like a whole lot. <laughs> and Walter Day really appreciated it. 
uh, it's also right after, like this, right after this actually is where we get the scene that I've already talked about, where Billy Mitchell tries to do like the weird like tie thing. Yeah, trying to explain his initials. Uh, but then, uh, yeah, so that happens. Uh, and then we go back to Walter Day, and here is where uh, sort of the stakes get raised for the third act, because Walter Day gets a call from Dun Dun Dun, the Guinness Book of World Records. <gasps> They are interested in starting to tra- in, in tracking high scores for video games, and so they have reached out to to Walter Day and Twin Galaxies uh, to form a kind of partnership. Since Twin Galaxies has already done you know so much work in this regard, mm-hmm. uh, and Walter Day, you can believe it, is pleased as punch. Yeah, and so Donkey uh, Kong is one of the few scores that they're interested in including, and so there's this kind of rematch moment, this idea that that Steve Weeby could prep and and get good and get ready in order to face billy mitchell head-to-head in an event um and so he preps for that and then they travel i think they're in texas well no 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 so uh they we get a we get a montage this is very important set to eye of the tiger (laughs) yeah you're right? right which is again like movie magic like this this documentary is hewing very closely to sort of cinematic acts cinematic beats right like the the training montage at the beginning of the third act when the protagonist realizes that not all hope is lost and that if they work just a little bit harder they have one last chance to redeem it all uh so then we have yes uh the eye of the tiger uh montage as steve weeby is playing uh and uh the the for whatever reason and i'm not sure why this is the tournament kind of thing that Guinness is holding with in uh, in in sort of league with Twin Galaxies is not in Texas. It's in Hollywood, Florida, which is Billy Mitchell's oh. hometown. Oh, oh, that's right because they go to a, I, that does make sense. I don't know why I thought that happened in Texas, um, but yeah, this occurs. And I, I just want to say too, so this is kind of like the third act of the thing, as you're saying. And this for me is like where this movie completely breaks down into like almost. Like, time and space are, are weird. We have no mm-hmm. idea. Or like, I don't have a good sense of how much time passes here. No. Um, there's a lot of... Uh, there's, like, this, and then there's, like, another song montage that happens here toward the end, or, like, a really heavily staged-to-music kind of segment. Um, and the the movie from here, I mean, 90% of the time, this is where I just turn it off, um, even, even while teaching it, because the <laughs> end of the documentary doesn't give, you know, a whole... A whole lot to 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 sit with here but um but yeah they go and they play and billy mitchell pointedly ignores steve Weeby, and then the movie ends yeah well so something we haven't talked about up until this point is that literally everyone mispronounces steve Weeby's name yeah steve weeb and, yeah everyone calls him steve weeb <laughs> Which is just so sad because I feel like Weeby is already an unfortunate enough last name, especially if your first name is Steve, like Steve Weeby, like that, the, the assonance there is just not great. Also, people are probably going to call you Stevie Weeby. Oh, 100%. Um, this poor man's been bullied his whole life being called Stevie <laughs> Weeby. There's no but, way he dodged that. Right. But then everyone, literally everyone just calls him Steve Weeb. And in fact, the only person who asks about it is, is Sanders. 
who shows up here at this particular tournament. And as he's talking with him, he's like, is it is it Weeby or Weeb? And uh, Steve Weeby is like, it's 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 Weeby. It's everyone at Twin Galaxies kind of calls me calls me Weeb, but it but it's wrong. <laughs> and this is like the first time we get him like correcting someone. But that's also the interesting thing about it, too, right, is that like. This is either largely over email or physical mail or internet, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a uh, presented as a rivalry, right? Uh, you know, the narrative of this would have us believe that this is like an intense personal conflict. But in reality, they don't even know how to pronounce each other's names, right? Like, uh-huh. the, there is something about the way that the narrative itself brings these people into concert and conflict with one another that seems much tighter and much more kind of. Uh, mean-spirited in the narrative than it really is in uh, in real life except for when Steve Wiebe is playing in like the arcade setting and Billy Mitchell walks by yes um, and he's Steve there with his wife yeah so Billy Mitchell is there with his wife um, and uh, walks up to Steve Wiebe basically Steve Wiebe's playing Donkey Kong Walks up to him, stands there for a minute. Steve Weeby is like, hey, Billy. And then Billy Mitchell walks away mm-hmm. without acknowledging him. And says something to the effect of like, yeah, there's some people we want to spend time with here and some people we don't. Yeah. And he says that to his wife, I think. His wife yeah. is like walking with him. Um, and it's very strange. And he is he is there, I think, for a fairly prolonged amount of time, right? He kind of like does the rounds. I don't know if he plays any games, mm-hmm. but you we see him walking around with his wife uh for quite a bit and it is sort of you know clearly suggested through editing that he just spends this entire time pointedly ignoring steve weeby yeah and this is another one the song that is playing during during this weird uh, segment Mm -hmm. is just just for those listening at home it is everybody knows by leonard cohen so we've got a real eclectic soundtrack here oh yeah it's someone was like we got money to license how many songs (laughs) (laughs) um but but this is also another uh, you were talking about a hotly contested kind of of uh, story beat in the documentary. This is another hotly contested. Apparently, the lunch that like Billy Mitchell doesn't show up for, or or that they sit across the room from one another at, and all that kind of stuff. Apparently, Billy Mitchell and Steve Weeby have lunch here, and Billy Mitchell paid for it, and all kinds of things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the there's kind of a uh, almost a performative after the fact kind of response to the documentary around the scene, but. We just get several scenes here where Billy Mitchell appears to not just not want to compete head to head, but is pointedly ignoring Steve Wiebe to the point of like being bad. Yeah, if you were to go off of this documentary, uh, you could reason like if you were to treat this as like the sole uh, access to, to truth and fact that you have, you could say like. Billy Mitchell and Steve Weeby have never spoken to one another, right? <laughs> you could say that, but like as as you pointed out, Cameron, it that is that is objectively untrue, right? Yeah. They have they have in fact played against each other at some point prior to this. Like they have met a couple of times before this. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but that doesn't make for a good documentary. No, it doesn't, uh, and it doesn't make for good Rocky. Right. No, um, no. Apollo Creed and Rocky. There can't be a point in the middle of Rocky where Apollo Creed and Rocky are like hanging out and they like do a little sparring match. They're like, you're pretty good. You're pretty good too. I guess and we gotta Apollo beat each Creed's other up. Like, later. hey, I'll buy you lunch. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'll, I'll I'll be very nice to you. Uh, you can't like you know it, it messes up the kind of uh, blockbuster narrative that's here. Um, Steve Weeby fails to get the the score here. Mm-hmm. Goes back home. 
or fails to transcend the score that Billy Mitchell has set in the videotape specifically. Right. Oh, and uh, something we didn't even talk about with the videotape. Um, the the film very uh, clearly focuses on the score. Uh, I don't think we talked about this at all. Um, when the score reaches uh, a million, it mm. zeroes out. Yeah. Uh, and in the tape that Billy Mitchell sends in, there's a kind of uh, distortion that you know maybe something right mm-hmm. because we have already been led by the events of the narrative thus far to understand that uh the tapes are not trustworthy uh this distortion in the tape is sort of questionable and at the same time it gets explained away for billy mitchell as just like oh yes it's an old tape as it, i think that's like the the explanation that walter day buys and of course we have steve Weeby. um commenting expressly on kind of the the hypocritical nature of this that billy mitchell has been on record in the past saying that like it's in-person scores that count and then suddenly when his in-person score gets broken he has to swoop in with this recorded score yes um and so maybe this is the appropriate time to bring in the the aftermath of this right which is that um billy mitchell's score his recorded score um, because he even produced after this documentary, after the time period this documentary has, he produced an even higher VHS score. Um, and that video last year, two years ago, mm-hmm. um, two years it, ago, yeah, in the recent recent history, uh, has been analyzed, and the way that the level renders in is different in uh, arcade emulation versus an actual Donkey Kong machine. Uh, the tape renders it in the way that emulation would do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so rather than kind of in a cascade, it is via, uh, like, element by element, uh, as opposed to, like, scan lines from the top, mm-hmm. um, or, or certain elements in scan lines from the top. And so then, therefore, Billy Mitchell has been stripped of all of his scores, mm-hmm. and all of his high scores. Because he was playing uh, on emulators. He was playing on emulator. Allegedly. Allegedly. Don't sue me, Billy Mitchell. Um, but so that was a big thing for Twin Galaxies for uh, this kind of um, uh, hardcore or uh, yeah, I guess hardcore serious retro gaming kind of high score set. But what is interesting about that to me, right, is that the if we say and as as several people who are in this documentary have uh, Brian Koo, I think, has said this explicitly, right, that this movie is functionally fiction, right? Mm-hmm. And as I said at the beginning, you should start with that, with all documentaries to begin with, right? Just due to the, the nature of how documentary functions, not a lens on reality, it is a perspective. Perspective always requires fabulation. So you got, you got to start from that spot. But even if you want it to be 100% accurate, uh, Billy Mitchell's a villain, Steve Wiebe is, is a good person, Billy Mitchell ultimately, at the end of the day, is actually being untruthful here right his score with which he beat steve Wiebe is untrue it's fake mm-hmm. that's also to say too in the real context there's, there's a third party who is doing this after the documentary came out this other person whose name i am uh, forgetting i can look it up right now but he beat both of their records fairly quickly afterward i was gonna say is he the one who holds the current record um i don't a bunch of people have beaten the, these records since the game has come out. Um, okay. Okay. So Steve Wiebe gets it in 2006, over one million. So he gets 985,000 in, in 2005. Yeah. Uh, uh, 2006, over a million. 
that's what we get in the credit stinger right like the documentary ends and then it's like the credits are rolling and then we get the music is playing and we get a record scratch and then it's just like oh but by the way (laughs) when we were in post on this documentary steve weeby actually beat the record yep and then so uh we got hank chin c-h-i-e-n hank chin Mm -hmm. and then steve weeby again in 2010 and then hank chin just keeps topping his own record up until 2014 someone named robbie lakeman holds it for a while for a few years or a couple years west copeland robbie lakeman again west copeland robbie lakeman uh all the way up back and forth basically multiple times a year all the way up until 2019 when someone named john mccurdy gets it in march 17th with uh 1.249 million and then on march 25th of of 2019 gets 1.259 million that's a lot yeah this kind of feels like i'm having like cricket flashbacks (laughs) where it's just like it's like it's just somehow somehow people keep getting better at this game yeah like (laughs) well it's because robbie lakeman never met the googly oh okay okay yeah if if he had steve weeby never met the googly (laughs) i mean honestly the, the the kind of weirdness of it would be like you see, Billy Mitchell, Billy Mitchell eventually met the Weeby. And <laughs> Billy Mitchell could not transcend the Weeby. He was troubled by it. He, he was so troubled by the Weeby. In fact, I guess you could call it, it should be the King of Kong troubled by the Weeby. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, but yeah, um, I, that, that is, for the most part, the, the whole documentary. Um, I think there's a lot of interesting intersection. I, you know, I think... Reading the Kasurik book for last month and then watching this right after, I think it was a good exercise, but because I think that Kasurik is a hundred percent right, um, in the, of like reading this kind of focus on arcades and this kind of focus on these games, mm-hmm. I, I think the vibe is a hundred percent correct. There's some sort of lost or maybe not lost, but like a maintenance of masculinity in a lot of different ways going on through this kind of mediation of the or remediation of the arcade. I think that's a hundred percent accurate. I think that if you're going to teach this documentary, you should teach maybe the first chapter of Kasurik's book. Um, and I think if you're going to teach the first chapter of that book, it might be useful to also teach the documentary. Um, mm-hmm. I think they speak really well to one another. Yeah. Um, one thing that to bring up here at the end is something I forgot to mention at the beginning, which is the, the epigram that begins this uh, film. <laughs> I'm going to quote this for you, dear Mm -hmm. listener. This is a war universe. War all the time. There may be other universes, but ours seems to be based on war and games. That was said by William S. Burroughs. And so we get this at the beginning of this film uh, as like a title card. Uh, The text is white and it's floating over like the starry background of space. Yeah. You have any thoughts on that, Cameron? Uh, well, it never comes up again. Nope. But I do think it's interesting that there there is a William Burroughs quote here. Um, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's one of those things where it kind of feels like this got this got put here because someone went to like brainyquote dot com <laughs> and then typed games into the subject search. It, it definitely feels that way. Uh, but it also does uh, suggest some attempt at, at at trying to think through 
the game and competition aspects of this, and especially, I think, as it uh, ties in with the, the maintenance of masculinity that you were talking about. Uh, the the game as, as the redirected form of combat. Yeah. Well, it also uh, uh, holds out the opportunity for David Cronenberg's The King of Kong. <laughs> they apparently uh they are still trying to get a feature made out of this uh so it could happen um well we're getting we're getting close to the 20 year mark we're only like five we're you know seven years away from the 20 year anniversary of this documentary so maybe when uh maybe when uh steve goodman's done making horrible bosses and uh uh you know uh when sequels and bone... Baywatch 2 <laughs> yeah when he does Baywatch 2 and then the bone collector uh, TV series, then uh, maybe he can get back to it. Any, any final thoughts here, here, Michael? Hmm. No, uh, you actually summed it up pretty well in that I think, uh, building on what I said earlier, that this this feels this feels like if Christopher Guest read Kosurik's book and then said, "I'm going to make a documentary about," or "I'm going to make a movie about this." Uh, I do think that they like inform each other really well in 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 the ways that you were describing about the maintenance of masculinity and how that gets filtered through the arcades. And this would actually be a great point. Like this film presents uh, a great sort of jumping off point for then extending a lot of the stuff that Kosurik is talking about since she's sort of um, more largely historical Mm -hmm. and we can see what, what, what happens to this kind of techno masculinity after King of Kong. Yeah. I have, I have always, um, I've found this documentary in my own usage uh, in the classroom. I've always found it helpful as an illustration or as an exercise. Um, so reading um, uh, uh, T.L. Taylor's book on esports, I'm blanking on the, the title right now, um, but reading the Is intro to that play? book. Oh, no, that's the streaming one. Yeah, it's the streaming book. Uh, the one before that. I don't, I don't know why I'm blanking on the title. But T.L. Taylor's book on esports, reading the first chapter of that and then watching the first half hour or so of this. Uh, in class there's a there's a lot to kind of pick through and work over around competition and what competition's about and and how um competition especially around games affords other things how it provides this kind of platform for for all kinds of other cultural things right um i think you could raising the the stakes is raising the stakes sports esports book esports esports the the ultimate uh combination of uh technology and a spoon and a fork uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh but yeah so so you know if you're if you're thinking about if you're a graduate student or if you're uh someone who's interested in teaching the, this documentary um it pairs up really nicely with, with uh, several other kind of uh, game studies readings i don't know what we're doing next michael do you i don't know either yeah we'll figure it out mm-hmm uh, Michael, where can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, twitter.com slash Warren is dead. You got uh, anything you want to plug? No. Well, yes, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, so for the past uh, several months, I've been working at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, with uh, Dr. Diana Henderson in their literature section to prep an online a, 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 a massively open online course um uh for the merchant of venice that is essentially a sort of a free thing that you can register for and uh reading through the course content it will teach you 
how to think about Shakespeare and how to put on productions of Shakespeare and how every sort of staging and production is, is requires you to make a lot of interpretive and editorial choices about the history of the play and so on and so forth. It should be very fun. There's lots of video clips. It's kind of multimedia heavy. The aim is to show people what it is like uh, to study the humanities at MIT, which, as the name might suggest, is not well known for the humanities. But uh, that is going to be live on March 27th. So if you just search for Global Shakespeare's uh, Recreating the Merchant of Venice, uh, edX, that's E-D-X, then you should find the registration page for that course and you can, you know, sign up and when the course opens, you can, it's 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 self-paced so you can see all the content that you want in whatever order you want. Uh, check it out. Is there a promo code so they know that you sent them there? Absolutely not. I wish I wish I could give you some cool promo code, but as it is, I just tell you to Google it, and hopefully you'll find it. Uh, if uh, if you can't get a promo code for anything in the future, you should make it like a fifteen character string of random characters. You're <laughs> <laughs> like using promo code X one R capital I'll do, R. I'll do the thing that like Chrome does, where it's like suggest strong password. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Cool. Um, and of course, Michael runs the at range touch uh, Twitter account, which has uh, posted a whole lot of our official sponsor, Harry and the Hendersons. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, no, uh, I think I, I think I made them happy. I think I lived up to the agreement that we have with Hathi Trust, which is, of course, the Harry and the Hendersons Incorporated Trust. Yeah, uh, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, so, uh, you know, we'll wait, maybe next year they'll get mad again. Um <laughs> You can find me at C. Kunzelman um, on Twitter. You can go to rangetouch.com to find all of this stuff. I had something else I wanted to promote, Michael, and I'm forgetting what it might be. It's going to it's gonna be real annoying later when I remember. Is uh, it one of the other podcasts that you're guesting on? No. I don't know. Go check out. You can go to youtube.com slash rangetouch as well. Michael and I have another show called Too Much Future where we talk about uh, the Fallout games. We played all the way through Fallout 1. There's a bunch of videos over there that you can check out. And we've got Fallout 2 that just started uh, a couple weeks ago. Um, when, when you're hearing this, it'll be a couple weeks back or maybe a week back. Uh, so you can go check that out. Again, that's youtube.com slash range touch. If you like listening to this show and you want to hear us talk about Fallout and kind of blow by blow, uh, beat by beat kind of kind of deal, um, uh, then, then you can do that. Uh, it's free on YouTube. Uh, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch to support the show. As little as a dollar a month really does help us out. It helps pay our hosting costs. It, it helps uh, just make the world go round in a general sense. Uh, if you give us $3 a month, you get access to our show notes for this show, as well as a podcast feed for Too Much Future, our Fallout show. So if you don't want to watch it on YouTube, you can pay $3, get it to your phone. If you want to listen to it while you're jogging, or perhaps, um, I don't know, uh, installing shingles or something like that. You could do that. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. We Hopefully, we have uh, listeners from, from all kinds of backgrounds, from, from people who jog all the way to people who install shingles. <laughs> uh, that's, of course, the, the true The true breadth of the human experience Yep, um, is the range touch listenership. Ex- exactly. Um, but yeah, uh, we don't know what the next uh, episode's going to be, but it'll be coming out next month, and uh, it'll be there for you. Oh, and if you support it $5 a month, you get access to a secret Let's Play that I've been uh, working on over there. So it'll be fun. Any final thoughts, Michael? Only 
the sign off. So unless you have a final thought, uh, I don't. Well, my final thought, as always, is uh, I wonder what the sign off is going to be. <laughs> Why do you even wonder? Because most important and most relevant to to the documentary you've just discussed, uh, keep an eye on us at Game Study Study Buddies, where the social is predicated on its exclusions. Mm-hmm.